Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin, along with my co-host, Bruce Kelly. We're here today. We've got a couple of great topics coming at you. First, we're going to talk about ESG performance potentially lagging going forward, which is going to be interesting. We've got some, uh, we got a professor here from the Wharton School talking to us about his research. Then later, we're going to talk to our very own tech whiz kid, Nicole Casperson, about the Robinhood initial public stock offering. That's going to be a lot of fun. But first of all, Luke Taylor. Luke is a an associate professor of finance at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He earned his AB from Princeton University, an MBA and PhD in finance from the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Luke's primary areas of research are empirical corporate finance and asset management. His research focuses on two main themes, structural estimation in corporate finance and understanding the skill of financial actors like CEOs and active fund managers. Since joining Wharton, Professor Taylor has taught venture capital and the finance of innovation to undergraduate MBA and executive MBA students. From my perspective, Luke sounds like a super smart guy. Luke, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. Let's kind of dive right into this. I know you you, you did some uh, pretty extensive research on ESG performance, and I thought it was pretty interesting because ESG, obviously, it, it really kind of knocked the cover off the ball in 2020. There are all kinds of reasons that people have, have drawn for that, but basically, it's it you know it's a pretty joyous time if you're an ESG investor. Things have pulled back a little bit this year, but I really was interested in your perspective on why some of this ESG performance is, is maybe a little bit front-loaded and, and could could pull back a little bit. I'm sure I oversimplified it and I probably got a few things wrong, but can you walk us through some of the high notes and then Bruce and I will, will try and stump you. That's what we do. Oh, great. Great. It shouldn't be too hard, by the way. We, we noticed the same thing as you, Jeff. We noticed that over the past several years, we call them green assets, kind of uh, environmentally friendly companies. They, they've they performed really well. They've had great stock performance. And in our research paper, we're really focusing on one question. What does this past performance of green assets imply about their future performance? Mm-hmm. And kind of the, the bottom line, the, the bottom line for us in this paper is that, you know, yes, these green assets delivered really great returns in recent years. But that performance reflects unexpectedly strong increases in environmental concerns, not necessarily high expected returns. And what that means kind of from from a practical point of view is that I guess we have bad news for ESG investors, which is they they should not expect that high recent performance to continue. And, And if you'd like, I could kind of Go into the details and how we reach that conclusion. It's it's really what where where do you want me to go next? Yeah, what do you yeah, think? I would like to, and you and I did talk about this a little bit, but I, I'd like you to explain a little bit about how the kind of the optimism of of ESG or green investments is is kind of leading to its maybe lagging going forward. If you yeah, sure. I, I I'll give you kind of the the intuitive answer, and then I'll kind of go into the the research details. So the intuitive answer is that 
the last several years were very special years in kind of an unexpected way. What we think was really special about the last, I'll say a couple last eight years, what was really special about the last eight years is that concerns about the environment and specifically climate change grew tremendously. And we argue that 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 growth and concern about climate change was was unexpected. So it was a very special eight year period. And what what we argue and what we show with data in our paper is that when people become more concerned about climate change, that makes green stocks outperform. So that's kind of the intuitive answer. And so the way we kind of get at this more rigorously is we we measure in the data an index over time about how concerned people are about climate change. And what we see there is we see a pretty steady increase in people's concerns about climate change over the last decade. Next, we isolate kind of what was the unexpected increase in in concerns about climate change. And what we find is that when people unexpectedly become more concerned about climate change, when that happens, green stocks tend to outperform brown stocks. So again, green stock, that's an environmentally friendly stock. Brown stock is an environmentally unfriendly stock, like a, a coal stock. Mm-hmm. So basically what we're finding is that these green stocks, they tend to outperform when we get bad news about climate change. And we've gotten a lot of bad news about climate change over the last eight years. Hey, Luke, this is Bruce. Can I just interrupt you for a second? Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to break down your terminology a little bit. Yeah, sure. You're characterizing people's perceptions as unexpectedly reacting this way? Let me think. Because why would, if there's a hurricane or if, you know, if there's a a Katrina, for example, right? I, yeah. I was living in lower Manhattan <laughs> when Katrina hit and saw the water rising around my building, you know, and I was on the, the 16th floor. Why is that? I don't, I don't understand why, they, why my concerns about the environment would be unexpected. Yeah, I, I mean, I can think of two ways to answer that. One is there's been a lot of new evidence, scientific evidence. Okay. That's okay. been released over the last eight years. Like there's a lot of we've just learned about the science of climate change. Right. And I would say it's been mostly bad news. There's been a, there's been plenty of bad news. I'll put it that way. Right. And even if there weren't new scientific evidence, peop, I would say people are becoming more aware of the existing scientific evidence. It's like the, the awareness of climate change has increased, I, I think, pretty dramatically over the last eight years. So those are. Two ways in which I would say it's kind of an unexpected increase. The increase in the awareness has a correlation to the performance of the of the stocks in the index, is what you're saying. Yeah, it's well, I can I can kind of tell you how do we measure the level of climate change? That's I can go into that, but what we find is when that index of climate concerns goes up, green stocks outperform brown stocks. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This the way we measure it, I think it's pretty cool. We Basically, how would you define green stocks versus brown stocks? Could you just give us some examples? Yeah, absolutely. So we're using stocks, we're using data on ESG scores from a leading ESG provider, MSCI. Okay. They rate companies on the ESG pillars, and we're we're focusing on the E. We're focusing on the environmental. So we're using their environmental scores. 
so a green stock is a, a, a company that, that performs very favorably in the e, MSCI ESG ratings for, for E. Gotcha. And, and what you find when you kind of compute those scores, what you find is kind of what you would expect. The industries that have the worst environmental ratings are oil and gas, mining, which would include coal, and chemicals. So you kind of get a, a you kind of get scores that make sense. Hey, hey, Luke, just to kind of help put a bow on this first point here, would it be safe to to describe this this trend that you're seeing with bad environmental news driving green stocks higher? Kind of similar to like when you see there's going to be more sweeping legalization around marijuana that cannabis stocks do better, right? Yeah, I, I think that's a fine analogy. We've gotten a lot of good news about cannabis and that's pushed right. up those prices. So bad environmental news is good for green stocks. And I think what you're saying is that we're getting used to the bad news. So the green stocks are likely to lag. People are getting comfortable. They're, they're basically accepting the fact that climate change is here and we've got to do things about it. But the stocks themselves are not as attractive to people. Is that or they're maybe you know, we're driven up by the other bad news and they're fairly valued. I'm just kind of wondering, because it seems like if people are concerned about climate change and, and they're going to maybe move toward cleaner fuels and you know, wind and solar energy and stuff like that, that would be kind of an ongoing growth story. But you're suggesting that it's not. We think all these companies, green and brown, are fairly priced. That's kind of the, our, our starting point of view. But what we think has happened is that as people have become really concerned about climate change, we think that's driven a lot of this growth in ESG investing. I mean, you, you guys have probably seen the incredible growth in assets under management oh, yeah. of ESG funds. There are more ESG investors today than there were eight years ago, right? And as investors are increasingly interested in these green assets, well, they start to buy them up and that pushes up their price. And we think that's kind of why these green assets have performed so well. So again, the story is climate change creates ESG investors and ESG, the growth of ESG investing is pushed up green stock prices. So where are we today? Green stocks are, we think, fairly valued, but they have high prices. Because ESG investors like holding them. And since they have high prices today, they have low expected returns in the future. I don't know if you looked at this, but I would be interested to, to know if you think that the, the expansion of ESG investment opportunities, ETFs and mutual funds, has led not just investors that had traditionally not thought about their, their allocations, but brought in investors who might not have even been in the market in any major way are now saying, hey, I'm going to get some of that ASG stuff because that's stuff I believe in. And that might also be part of what has driven those stocks. Yeah, it's a cool idea. We haven't looked at, at it, but it, it, it makes sense to me. You know, I think of millennials. I think millennials are really energized by, by ESG investing. Mm -hmm. I think you were going to break down a little bit about how you, you, you come to these conclusions, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Happy to, to go on there. So, so where, where I left off is I said, green stocks to tend to outperform when we get bad news about climate change. What we do next is we kind of, we ask a what if question. We say, what if the past had been different? We say, what if, what if there had been no bad news about climate change over the last eight years? And we can do that with some statistical tools I can go into. But what we show is that 
when we set those climate shocks to zero, green assets don't outperform. That is, green stocks would not have outperformed over the last eight years without these strengthened concerns about climate change. So that's kind of what leads us to conclude this past great performance of green stocks that we've seen, don't expect it to continue because it was largely driven by these unanticipated shocks to concerns about climate change. Mm -hmm. It's actually even worse than that. When we start to throw in extra, you know, even more variables that measure people's strength and climate concerns, variables like flows into these ESG mutual funds. What we find is that when we zero out those flows into sustainable funds, and we also zero out these climate shocks, what we actually find is that green stocks would have underperformed in the last eight years. So we know they actually outperformed, but once we zero out these shocks that occurred, they, we find they would have underperformed. So this is what says, tells us, look, the future of green assets might, might actually be quite, quite bad relative to the last eight years. And by the way, this is exactly what economic logic would, would tell you to expect. Uh-huh. If, sudden, you know, if you've got eight years of people dumping, you know, pouring money into ESG funds, that means we should have seen those green stock prices being pushed up a lot in the last eight years. Right. What, what should we expect going forward? Well, people really like holding these green stocks today. That means green stock prices are high today. That means their expected future returns should be low. Or, or more simply, green stock, you know, ESG investors, they're willing to accept lower expected returns in return for holding these stocks that are better aligned with their values. And that's rational for them to accept lower expected returns. They feel, they feel good about holding these stocks. Well, We'll find out if they're willing to accept lower expected returns or lower <laughs> returns, I should say, because they haven't had to deal with that recently. But that is interesting. That will be interesting to see how loyal ESG investors are when uh, when they start to lag those big, filthy, dirty stocks. Hey, um, Luke, do you get any? Have you gotten any pushback on this research? It's been out there for a little while, right? If, is, has anybody come to you and said you're you're full of Malarkey as a president? <laughs> Not much yet. I, I, you know, this is a pretty young paper. From you know, when you write these papers from start to publication, it's usually a four or five year process, and we're maybe one year into that process. We're just starting to collect people's feedback. Yeah, we expect we expect plenty of pushback for sure. What you expect pushback because you think people are going to challenge the the idea that green stocks were not driven by shocks to this to the climate. I, I, you know, it's hard to say what what I expect people to push back on. I think people have, I, I've noticed in the press, people have some pretty strong views about ESG investing, views that are really tied to their values. We're coming in when we're saying, you know, the, the future may not be so rosy for ESG investing. We expect some pretty vis- visceral pushback to that. But, you know, one way we would respond to that is, if you're an ESG investor, our results are, you know, partly good news for you. Why are people, you know, if you're an ESG investor, you know, I'm guessing one reason you do it is to make the world a better place. And one way you can make the world a better place 
as an ESG investor is by reducing the cost of capital for green companies and increasing the cost of capital for dirty, you know, environmentally unfriendly companies, right? Right. So if you're an ESG investor, you want green stocks to have lower expected returns because a stock's expected return is the cost of capital, right? You know, one stock's, you know, one man's expected return is another man's cost of capital. It's the same concept. So if you want to make the world a better place, you, you're hoping that green stocks have lower expected returns. What, what is the, the outlook for this at this point? I mean, you're, you know, lower expected returns, that might mean a lot of things. Are you talking, and I think you did kind of allude to this, but are we talking like seriously lagging the, like the broad market indexes? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's our forecast. We expect green, green stocks to underperform brown stocks. Uh, I know, but can you be? I know, I know it's a forecast, so it's hard to be real specific. But you know, if you're unper- underperforming by a few basis points, that's one thing. If you're underperforming by you know five percentage points, that's a that's a whole different animal. Yeah, it's a good question. I wish you know maybe that's one place we need to to, to head with this research papers to try to put numbers on that. It's something we just haven't tried to do yet. Okay, and um. Where can people listening to this podcast, mostly usually financial professionals, where could they go to, to find your research? Yeah, if you just Google Luke Taylor Wharton, that will take you to my, my website. And the research paper I've been talking about is called Dissecting Green Returns. Okay. And I'm assuming it's free, right? Yeah, it's it, absolutely. It's free. Download it from SSRN. Yep. Uh, Bruce, anything more for, for Luke? Yeah, I think it's I think it's interesting just from a from a lot of different uh points, but from just the financial advice point, Luke, which you're really not looking at. Brokers at Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch and Raymond James have really helped create demand for this product. That can't be and fidelity, right? They that can't be undersold. So brokers don't stop selling things to clients that the clients like. So I think there's going to be only greater fund flows here, which it's a universe of, it's a defined universe of companies. I don't know how many, I'm not that familiar with it. So that to me would signal that the more brokers sell these types of funds and ETFs, as Jeff noted, and everything, it would create potentially create higher prices and better and higher returns in the future for investors. And then there's also the thinking, right, that our environment will only continue to get worse, <laughs> sorry to say, creating more demand among consumers for these things. Those are my two thoughts. Yeah, I, I totally hear you. The the thing is, a lot of those effects, a lot of those effects you're describing are already in stock prices today because they're anticipated. We anticipate that climate change is going to be a problem for a long time and it's probably going to get worse. That's anticipated, so that's already in stock prices today. That has, should have no effect on expected future returns. It's priced in. But, you know, you may be Green stock. So our paper basically says green stocks got lucky in a sense over the last eight years 
it's very possible they'll continue to get lucky in the future. And by lucky, this is kind of a, a dark way of putting it, but it could be that we continue getting unexpectedly bad news about climate change or brokers push these products more than we expect currently, or consumers demand green products more than we currently expect, that would all be good news for green stocks, but it would be unanticipated. It would not be mm. part of expected returns. I just see the demand for these types of products increasing, not decreasing. Go yeah, on. absolutely. But it's already priced in, right? Everyone expects that. So that's already priced in today. That should, should have no effect on future returns. Right, right. Okay. Wow, that's uh, that's it's good stuff. I encourage you all to go to go find this research and uh, and pour through it. It is an academic report, so it's uh, it's not like reading a romance <laughs> novel. But you know, Jeff, did you write about this? Did you do? No, a I won't take that personally. That's no, no I'm, I'm not. <laughs> did saying you do it. an investment news story or something no, for this? I haven't yet. I'm I'm just I'm saying, stay tuned, folks, because we're going to be writing about this. We'll be covering this. I plan on writing at least one story on this. Yeah. Uh, in addition to this podcast, it's, it's just a great, a great talking point and it's a great concept. And, it, you know, for that way, people could have a cheat sheet. They could just go to your story and then link to exactly everything, you know, so I, I doubt I can report in a way that would do justice to uh, Luke's <laughs> work, but uh, just the you can probably make it readable, <laughs> but I'm not saying it's not readable. But bad news is good news when it comes to ESG. So uh, if it, that's that's it, I I cannot wait to follow this along, and and we'll have you back on here in a few years, Luke, and uh, we'll see if you're right or wrong. So, all right, thank you very much. Thanks, Luke. Thanks, guys. It's been a lot of fun. Okay, now we've got our very own. Tech whiz kid Nicole Casperson joining us. We're going to talk about the Robinhood initial public stock offering today here on it is July 29th right now. We know that this podcast drops on Monday, but uh, we're talking about this on the day of the uh, IPO. It looks like it didn't quite make the uh, IPO price, although the market is still open for about another half hour. Nicole, welcome to the show. What did you learn from uh, all your research into Robinhood and uh, what you saw from this uh, big IPO? Highly anticipated. Ah, well, thanks, guys, for bringing me back on. Always love being here. There's a whole lot of red in Robinhood's IPO is what I'm currently <laughs> watching and monitoring. So I've learned that red is bad and green is good. And there hasn't been a lot of green here except for Robinhood's marketing and logo. I've learned a lot about Dogecoin in my time reporting about Robinhood. And that is actually a meme stock, in case you're wondering. But for real, I guess the real learning experience is more so around Robinhood and what has happened over the last 12 months, in a sense, right? So two things. One, Robinhood has, you know, obviously exploded in popularity, experienced dramatic growth from fewer than 500,000 customers in 2015 to more than 31 million today. But with all of that explosive growth has come a lot of heightened scrutiny throughout what has been a pandemic year. They've had a number of regulatory issues. The largest FINRA fine hit their way of $70 million. Their pay-for-order flow is a major cause of concern. Uh, Gary Ginsler 
from the SEC has made it very clear that's on his radar. And that is 81% of their revenue stream. So if anything happens to pay for order flow, they are essentially, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? I was going to say they are out of luck. And this is a family podcast here. (laughs) I'll keep it (laughs) PG-13 at the very least. But I, one of the things I learned from some sources I spoke to for the story I did is Robinhood is going to, for long-term sustainable growth, they're really going to have to look into other areas that they can succeed if the chance happens, and it likely will, that something happens to pay for order flow business model. Right. You know, so, any type of, yeah. Nicole, if we could just back up a second. The IPO was today, as Jeff mentioned, and it was priced at thirty-eight bucks a share, right? Yes, yes, and that and they ended sold up about being, two billion. I'm not they, sure they how much. They raised about two billion or something. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much they've sold so far, but right. uh, yeah, I know I that the, the idea was to raise. They're going to raise about two billion. It values the company at something like thirty. Two billion or something. Two billion, yeah. So they're selling a tiny slice of it. I'm just looking. It's almost four o'clock here, and it's trading. It's down a little bit. It's down Mm seven percent at thirty five bucks a share. So, yeah, and it's been kind of down all day. I mean, the thirty eight dollar per share price is on the lower end of what they had originally maybe estimated. There was some estimates around like forty five dollars a share, which obviously indicates that maybe there isn't as much interest as uh, anticipated. And it's been trading on the lower side since then, lower than the $38. So I thought that was kind of interesting because... Well, brokerage firms, you know, the pricing on brokerage firms is always extremely volatile, you know? So that's what Robinhood is. It's a trading platform. It's not an asset manager. It's not a an RIA. So it can have... Man, these things... I remember when Lehman Brothers was a publicly traded company, Merrill Lynch... Bear Stearns, I mean, you know, those all got wiped out basically in the credit crisis for being over leveraged on real estate and real estate loans. And, you know, the volatility around brokerage is 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 extremely high for a publicly traded company. Right. And, and Robinhood was supposed to be, you know, even more volatile, right, because of the way that they set aside 20 percent to 35 percent of its shares to users of its platform to invest in its IPO. So that is also you know, cause for concern. Right. Yeah, it's 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 difficult to compare Robinhood or something like Robinhood to a Bear Stearns or a Lehman Brothers. Yes, I mean, as, you are right, sir. As Josh Brown said on CNBC earlier today, I mean, this place, Robinhood really is a one-trick pony at this point, and, and yes. they have to evolve beyond relying so heavily on order flow. And it, I mean, if, you know, they've got, their what did he say? Their their median trader on the platform is thirty one years old. the The whole business model depends on a lot of trading activity, and who, we can only assume that that trading activity de- declines sharply in a market downturn because people just don't trade that actively when things are going down. They they tend to run head for the hills. So and and Josh Brown he called it gambling. I. I don't think he meant that the that investing in Robinhood was gambling, although it might be. But the platform is basically kind of promoting gambling in the market, not investing in his words. They are his words, but I do kind of agree with him. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it will be interesting to see. This does get a lot of attention because it gets the same reason Robin Hood's business model gets a lot of attention. But, you know, you can't well, really. Well, it's the new guard taking on the old guard, right? And that is always going to get a lot of. Yeah, it's the marketing. They marketed yeah. the hell out of this platform to say, you. I was looking at their Twitter today. Oh my gosh, the video, the marketing video that they have for their IPO today is wild. It you gotta admire like, that though, right? I mean, they've really done a great job with their messaging. Yeah. They literally say, they call, we democratize investing for all. You are the new Wall Street. Which is like, <laughs> you're the yeah. new Wall Street. Do, do, do I really, like, I'm not even 31 guys. Do I want to be the new Wall Street? I don't know. Like, it's kind of like, it's a crazy marketing strategy that has worked so, like, I mean, time and time and again, right? Like, Basically, Robinhood just took what Facebook and Google and Silicon Valley has done and brought it to retail finance, user as a product, right? Kind of brilliant. Yeah, it's like so smart. (laughs) And it's scary. Also scary at the same time. If you're looking for a way to make, if you're Robinhood and you want to sell a lot of stock and make a lot of money, it's just a brilliant strategy. You know, I don't know how great a strategy it is for people in their 20s to be to be investing this way rather than, you know, the typical, you know, invest in the index and set it mm-hmm. and forget it and all that kind of stuff, which is the proven formula for building wealth. But I think a lot of Robin Hood's success and right has been due in some ways to the pandemic and people discovering shorting stocks, shorting AMC mm-hmm. earlier this year and shorting all these companies that were and going long against these companies that were being shorted by hedge funds, you know, because they were so, you know, their business models were so uh, damaged by the pandemic and people staying at home. I think the timing for Robinhood couldn't have been any better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. There, uh, I can't remember the exact number at the top of my head, but there is a survey by Betterment, the robo-advisor uh, that came out a couple months ago. And you know, talking about how the day trading frenzy is, you know, likely to continue a little bit post pandemic, you know, and how new investors flocked to online brokerages last year. But it what like the survey did find out that that was largely due to shelter in place orders that kept investors stuck inside and looking at screens all day and looking for ways to fill their time and stimulus checks. I mean, you know, every everyone got one. And so a lot of young people put that money into investing via Robinhood. And so, I mean, will that kind of momentum continue on? Like what kind of long-term sustainability does that have? I mean, it doesn't really. And unfortunately, like Robinhood's entire platform is based on the idea that high volume trading, right, is going to keep them, keep their revenue stream going. And so they have so much incentive to keep the flame going, right? For for young investors to just keep like <laughs> day trading as much as possible. So it, I mean, does that last forever? Will these young people grow up and say, eh, I want to go do something else with my time. I mean, eventually yeah. or whatever. I mean, like, I was around for eventually. the last day trading boom in the late nineties and it did come to a crashing halt. Right. So. All the fun ends eventually, right guys? Yes. Wall Street taught us anything. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if uh, we should be calling these people on the Robin Hood platform investors. I'm kind of in the school of calling them traders. And I think there's a distinct difference there. And I, I agree. It's a, it is kind of a model that it snubs its nose at Wall Street. And right now it seems like Wall Street's snubbing its nose right back at Robin Hood. So 
we'll see where this thing goes. I don't know what what's your thinking, Nicole, on you know what happens. Well, like Robinhood either has to expand its its product line or be acquired by somebody. Pretty much, they have no choice really. You know, moving forward, other than to expand their offerings, right? To figure out a way. And you'd think that after all of the regulatory, you know, hiccups that they've had, and the fact that you know Gary Gensler and and the entire kind of regulatory atmosphere is so zeroed in on the payment for order flow situation that they would be at this moment, right? Like working on, okay, hey, we're going to have this increased capital thanks to the IPO. Let's maybe figure out ways that we could diversify the business, right? It's like the only thing that they could do to make this sustainable because otherwise they're just going to fall flat or be acquired, right? I mean, that might be the best thing, but they have such a strong client base. I mean, 31 million users is insane. They have such a, and such a strong following, right? Like, us millennials and Gen Z, like we're so obsessed with branding. We like love the green. We love the feather. We love the whole concept of like <laughs> Wall Street. Forget you guys. We're way cooler. Like we we love that concept. So then, you know, <laughs> if you were to kind of just capitalize on that right, and say, okay, well, you know what, guys? Trading isn't even cool anymore. Let's, let's start talking about retirement planning. Let's start talking about, let's just focus on crypto. I don't know, whatever it is, like that would probably be the best thing they could do is if they're literally thinking of that right now, like after they pop the champagne and like, you know, kiss the babies or whatever it is people do after they like go public and like confetti and all that stuff. The next thing they should be doing tomorrow is thinking, okay, how can we <laughs> make sure we can keep this thing going? Uh, once uh, all the regulatory kind of action happens or eventually happens and, and the, the day trading flame dies down. Yeah, I don't know if they if they kiss babies after IPOs, but is that something presidents do? I I missed. I That's messed what up politicians my... do. Right? <laughs> I messed up. Yeah, my I don't own. want to say who investment bankers kiss after <laughs> you're, an IPO. You're, you're mixing your metaphors there. Yeah, yeah. but um, it, well, How very Gen think, Z um, of you. I know. I don't. I don't subscribe to <laughs> metaphors or labels, guys. <laughs> but what I, what I, you know, we're sitting here, you know, as people who didn't start a uh, multi-billion-dollar business, telling Robinhood what they're doing wrong. So, for all I know, you know, you're, like you said, they grew from five hundred thousand in well, how many years ago to thirty-one million subscribers. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe that's their model. Maybe they go to sixty million subscribers. All they need is trades. It doesn't even yeah, matter if people are making money or losing money. All they need is trading activity. And there's nothing illegal about their payment for order flow. No, no. It's scrutinized. Jeff, what I think might be interesting, though, is, you know, they got into this trouble from the regulators, right? And and have they, you know, it was it was several months ago. Have they made any changes, Nicole, to your knowledge to address those issues? Or... They, not to my knowledge, one of the things that they said in the past, one of the only changes they've ever said that they would do that I know they haven't done yet is the hiring of like a chief options specialist. Now they have right. hired, you know, educational people. They've hired, obviously, right. They, they're a massive recruiter of actual, you know, financial advisors, not for financial advice, but to bring them on as customer service reps. And some of them have the title of like option specialists. So, I mean, they've done that, but that's really about it. They haven't really done anything to address payment for order flow. 
and that type of thing. Oh, and then there's also, I totally forgot, you know, what just happened, because um, I'm so deep into Robin Hood, is that uh, the, the FINRA probing on yes. uh, their CEOs, Vlad, and their founder for not being le- registered brokers, which I think right. is so funny. Like, of course they're not. I mean, there's nothing illegal about that, right, guys? But no, it's weird. Is it weird? I don't know. In my experience, yeah, it's kind of strange, you know, like the CEO of LPL, Dan Arnold, is a registered person. And so that means that with FINRA and the SEC, so that means he has to make certain he's he has to do continuing ed credits and keep up with, you know, disclosures, you know, if he had a bankruptcy proceeding or something like that, that would all have to be disclosed. And I think it's you know, this industry needs as much disclosure as it possibly can. So if if these guys at the top of Robin Hood are not not registered, it really makes me question what is what are they doing? It just raises a question, that's all. So it's I, I think it's significant though. And it's something that kind of middle management people in the brokerage industry really take seriously. Like if there's a brokerage firm out there and and the CEO is not a registered person, they really, you know, they look askance a bit at that. Yeah, so. it's weird. I, I definitely think it's weird. It's something, you know, as someone new, a little bit new to the industry, I, it right, you don't, you don't even think twice about, of course, you'd think, of course, the CEO would be registered. A lot of their, com- some of their competitors are CEO, Weeble, M1 finance. So, I mean, you know, maybe Vlad should just like take the test, right? And you just take a test and become a registered broker. Maybe he should let, and like learn, learn about, you know, the whole industry that's like funneling the money <laughs> that he's getting. It, it, like it might be like worth a shot, like just something like just throw it in there, throw it in the list of skills. Like I think he went to like Stanford or something like couldn't be. So yeah, hard, I right? think I think it's important that if you're going to run a, a major corporation in this industry that you are doing the kind of the the legwork of the industry itself and that is being a registered person mm-hmm, you know? I, so. I would have a question for maybe for jeff or both of you so you know payment for order flow why is Robinhood so you know in the weeds with this if it's legal why do the people hate them for this so much i mean i know why but like if it's well, legal it's just kind of you're you're basically taking advantage of your investors. Right. You're selling their their activity to other investors, mm-hmm. and it just kind of looks kind of smarmy. But it's you know there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, everybody <laughs> does it too. <laughs> and that's a good point, Bruce. Everybody does it. It just looked that it's just looked at that way at, at Robinhood because you know they kind of present themselves as this you know young hip cool you know we're looking out for you guys to have fun and we give you a little okay. you know little virtual trinkets when you make a trade but we're still we still are uh connected to to the wall street people that we pretend to make fun of so right they they're kind of hypocritical in their marketing but they're like i said it's what they're doing is is what gets done and they've just figured out a way to capitalize on all of it because they they basically tapped into a rich vein of young people that think they can, you know, get rich by, by trading their, you know, stimulus checks. And, um, 
whatever works for them. I mean, who knows? Maybe we'll just and and, and yeah, a lot of this order flow gets sold to the um, what do you call them? The digital traders, uh, the algorithmic traders, right? <laughs> right, I- institutional investors at all right. different levels. But yeah, so. Wow. Wow. The power of marketing, guys. Are you serious? To think that no one thought of this before. Like, I could just take like the whole concept and like spin it on its heads. And what can I do to attract the young young Nicole, what you've done so well, you've written about this whole gamification thing, you Mm -hmm. know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. There you have it. And that's what we give them credit for in a weird way. Yeah. They've turned it into a game, you know? I mean, part of the reason it is you know, it's working and it's working now is, is the technology. 10, 20 years ago, you couldn't have an app on your phone that would allow you to trade away your life savings, but now you can. So, you know, you can do it while you're standing in line for a Subway sandwich. I think when I was 25, my life savings was a negative uh, $10 and 13 cents. Yeah. I don't want to talk about what my life savings is. You got to get, you got to be uh, on margin. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no margin. No margin. Robinson's got you covered there too. No margin. No, no. Margin bad. Margin bad. That's a good point though that you have there, right? Like what kind of life savings are like 20 year olds messing with at this point? You're paying for college. I mean, I was still paying my college loans back, right? Right. Like hence the negative account balance. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Stimulus checks, baby. You touched on that earlier. There it is. Some people use their stimulus checks to pay rent. Others to pay Robin Hood. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's the next. That's the next investigative piece. (laughs) Jeff, anything else for our very own Nicole Casperson? No, I'm. I it's always fun having Nikki with us, and uh, I'm really looking forward to her continued coverage of this. And I uh, can't wait to see where uh, Robin Hood is tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day. It's the gift that keeps on giving, guys. Yes, it Looking is. for Robin Hood, I will. I think always have a job. Thanks, Robin Hood. <laughs> really appreciate you. Keep keep the good times rolling. Oh, they will. I promise they will. It's just the beginning. <laughs> Thank you very much, Nicole. All right. Awesome. Thanks, guys. All right, Jeff. That was another great episode of the Investment News Podcast. If it's Monday, that means it's time for another podcast. We want to thank our special guests, of course, Luke Taylor from the Wharton School and our very own Nicole Casperson, our technology reporter at Investment News. We want to thank Stephen Lamb our producer, and you can find the podcast at investmentnews.com, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review, please, on Apple. Follow us on Spotify. You can reach out to Jeff on Twitter, and he is at Benji Ryder, me, um, at BD News Guy. Stay tuned because we'll be talking to you next week. <laughs>